Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for divergent perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Tsarich Iyun podcast brought to you by Shivat Oraita. My name is David Silverstein, and today I have the privilege to welcome to the podcast Rabbi Dr. Josh Berman, professor of Bible from Barilan University. Rabbi Berman, thank you so much for coming on the Tsarich Iyun podcast. Oh, well, thank you, David, for having me. And, uh, you know, I've spoken at Oraita a number of times over the years, so it's, uh, it's uh, a, a privilege to be back, uh, even if it's uh, virtual. Well, you wrote a, a really interesting article. I mean, you, you published a lot of uh, amazing books and a lot of fascinating articles. So this article was in a different forum. It wasn't uh, scholarly work, it was more popular work. It was on the Times of Israel blog. Uh, very important article, a uh, very provocative title. The title of the article was, Is This War a Divine Punishment? Uh, I was curious just to get a sense uh, in preparing for the podcast to see, you know, if people, if there were more people who commented on this post relative to other blogs of yours. And I just did a very, a very non-scientific study, and I saw that in the previous post you had, I think there were like two comments. In the most recent post, there were five comments, which is fairly typical for a blog. But on this one, you had 250 comments. So clearly, you really you touched a nerve, and uh, you know, you're speaking right. about an issue which I think people feel very passionately about. They do. So, um, you know, what I wanted to do today is really you know, to bring you on and to talk about this article and see it as a lens to sort of explore the larger issue of, you know, how does traditional Jewish theology uh, interface uh, with the horrors of October 7th? So maybe we could begin if you could just provide a framing about, you know, how have Jews, let's say, from the biblical period, you know, up until the modern period, probably I would argue, let's say, until the Holocaust, right? You know, how have Jews, you know, reacted to tragedy, right? What has been the theological intuition of Jews, both liturgically, in terms of ritual, in terms of different expressions, in terms of confronting, you know, different horrors that we've experienced over our history? Right. So, so first, we, we need to make a few basic distinctions. We're not talking here, uh, for the purposes of this podcast, about individual tragedy. Uh, um, uh, you know, disease or, or you know, uh, violence of any sort, um, uh, because that's in a different category. Um, uh, it's always been treated as a different category, cloud uh, versus prat, the collective versus the individual. Uh, we're talking here about things that happened to Klai Yisrael, and this war we can say is happening to Klai Yisrael. I mean, it really is, you know, I mean, obviously the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the massacres happened only in the land of Israel, but this war has worldwide repercussions for the Jewish people, as I, you know, I'm sure all of our listeners are, are very well aware. Um, so there's always been a distinction between the collective and, and the individual. And we're only talking here about, about collective issues and, and collective suffering. Um, uh, and I would also say that we may, may even need to make a further distinction within collective suffering between suffering between events that, that, that transpire in Eretz Yisrael and events that transpire outside of Eretz Yisrael. Uh, I think that those are basic distinctions that we find in the sources. Look, I, I would reframe, David, what the question is. The question is not, how do we look at suffering? The question is, is God involved in what happens in history? That's what it is, for good or for worse. Okay? We cannot be the people who look at God as a form of uh, uh, your local shul's candyman who only gives out nice things. 
Oh, he brings the Geula. Oh, we're in an age where the, prophet, where the prophet's words are being fulfilled. Those prophets that spoke about coming back to Eretz Yisrael also are the prophets who spoke about when Am Yisrael doesn't do what they're supposed to do, then there are repercussions for that. Our deeds control our destiny. And this has been the way in which every voice in the tradition, nearly every voice in the tradition, has viewed collect, the collective suffering and, uh, and, and contrastingly, uh, the blessing given to Kla Yisrael uh, uh, at any time. But doubly so, and especially so within Eretz Yisrael. The entire Tanakh is what I just said in one sentence. Your deeds control your destiny for good and for worse. And you see this in the Rambam. The Rambam says, in, in, in uh, uh, he codifies it in, in Hilchotaniot. There's a whole area of halacha in the Rambam, the laws of Taniot, of fasting, where he says, whenever, whenever something bad happens to the Tzibur, it is because of their ma'asim, and they should scream, and they should blow shofarot, and they do that to arouse people uh, uh, from, their, from their ignorance about this. And when people come and say, no, 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 no. The bad things that are happening to us have nothing to do with our behavior. He calls that cruelty. So we're being cruel. We're not, we're, not, we're, not, we're not owning up to how the world really works. And, you know, when we, when we look at, at, just think about, think about our slichas, the slichas that we say each year, you know, around the yummy, the yummy, the yummy, the rhyme. It's really fascinating. You see, Spartak slichot talk about tshuva, the penance, things like that. Just what you would think slichot should talk about. Our Ashkenazi slichot talk about pogroms, one after another. They're, that's all they're about. Oh my gosh, things are so terrible, and they really were terrible for European Jews for centuries. You know, we're, we're suffering and suffering. Please forgive us for our avirot. They clearly understood that what they were going through, and you know what the sins were. We can talk about that. Were they really sinning? Uh, we can, but certainly their own default setting about how to understand their collective suffering was that this was a reflection of, 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 their, of their deeds. And I think it's particularly interesting that you quoted the Rambam, right? Because you know, even if you want to argue that the Rambam may have a more limited conception of individual divine providence, right? Even he, right, believes that when it comes to the cloud, when it comes to the collective, right, it has to be that there's divine intervention. It has to be that there's a, you know, a guiding divine hand. Right? Well, there were some people that said to me, you know, the Rambam doesn't lay out exactly what you said in those terms. Some people said to me, look, when the Rambam says that when bad things happen to the cloud, that it's because of their ma'asim, maybe he means exactly what he says with regard to individual punishment. Meaning, for the Rambam, uh, uh, punishment, scharva onish, particularly onish, uh, uh, is a manifestation, is a result simply of the natural consequences of your, of, of, of your actions. So if you, you know, we might say, what should be the penalty for someone who texts while driving? And so that's terrible. Maybe a stiff fine. Would anyone say that we should, uh, uh, that the, the penalty for texting while driving should be the death penalty? Probably say, wow, that's really harsh. But the Raman would say, you know, if you're texting, if you're doing something that's unsafe, then the consequences of that are the punishment itself. And so if you get into an accident, and someone loses their life, that's your punishment. And if you lose your life, that's your punishment. So I, I think the Rambam might, might say the same thing also about the cloud. I don't know enough about the Rambam, but he could have the same idea. You know, so just, you know, as I suggested in, in, in the article that I wrote, one could say very simply, and uh, many, many people having no connection to Yiddishkeit whatsoever have said uh, that at least part of what 
part of you know what happened here on October 7th was that our enemies saw that we were at each other's throats and thought that this might be an, an, an opportune time to take advantage, that maybe we wouldn't get our, get our act together to, to respond appropriately, which is what the security uh, authorities had been warning for months. That was in the newspapers. I'm not saying I don't have privy. I'm not privy to anything uh, 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 secret about that. So that the problem I say here, you see, you know, they warned you. They told you that your that your that your 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 deterrence is 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 uh, is going down the tubes, and you didn't do anything about it. So this is what you get. That's what, maybe maybe that's what the Rambam means. I, don't right. know. I mean, obviously, you know, Maimonidean scholarship is complicated, so obviously there can be a whole podcast just on the Rambam's view of providence, right? But I'm curious in terms of thinking specifically, you know, not only about the Rambam, but also thinking more broadly. So you pointed mm -hmm. out that there seems to be a consensus view, at least in the Tanakh, right, that God is actively involved, right, in human affairs on the level yes. of the cloud, and obviously in Eretz yeah. Israel. And you, you know in the article that there does seem to be a shift in the way Jewish people um, react to uh, collective horrors, particularly post-Holocaust. Um, mm -hmm. A lot, a lot of written about that, and obviously, I think just experientially, you're right that you know, in terms of looking at the way that Jews have reacted to even the horrors of October seventh, even traditional Jews, right? There hasn't been a lot of people utilizing the language of you know, this imubnei chataenu. I even was thinking right. about that right. you know, in my right. shul. They say avinu malkenu, and everybody gets excited about the avinu malkenus that are about removing bad things, you know. But when it says avinu malkenu chatanu lefanecha, as you point which out, which is the first, that, that's first how we one. start. Exactly, right. It's that's how we one. start. Exactly. Not an accident. So, Exactly. So that one we kind of, you know, gloss over pretty quickly, you know, but uh, I'm curious if you, if you can sort of try and maybe speculate as to sort of what changes, right? Why is it that, you know, modern Jews after the Holocaust start to struggle and maybe aren't as comfortable using uh, this model? One of the things yeah. you put on the article is that it can't just be a function that we don't have prophets anymore, right? Because even, you know, the medievals also didn't have prophets, right? And they were okay right. using this language. So, so what happens to the modern Jew that all of a sudden makes him less comfortable using this type of uh, sort of religious uh, language? Right. So uh, I'm not sure, David, that it's an issue of Holocaust that now, you know, since the, since the Shoah, we have totally broken uh, uh, for our own selves with the idea that, 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 that uh, bad things that happen to the Jewish people are because of their deeds. Maybe I can certainly understand, you know, some people thinking about the show. I would come to that conclusion. I don't think my intuition is that that's not really what's animating the total absence right now of any type of collective cheshbon nefesh on the part of Chal Yisrael. I think that it's more, look, this is the first time uh, in my lifetime. I, okay, I was, I was still a child during the Yom Kippur War. It's certainly the first time in 50 years that uh, the Jewish people has uh, 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 experienced uh, this type of calamity, okay? That's 50 years of, of calm and prosperity. And that happens to, those 50 years happen to be most of our lifetimes, all of us. For you and for probably anybody who went to Oraita, it's all of your lifetime. You have only known Meimun uh peaceful waters. Uh, prosperity, blessing, geula, if you will, redemption, up and away we go, we're just waiting for the base of Mekdash, you know, at this point, you know, some, some, you know, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit about that last one, but we've known good times. Uh, and, and I think that this is the first time that any of us are really being confronted with the huge weight of the Mastora, you know, what I was saying before, starting from Tanakh, through the Rambam, you know, through all the keynotes, the keynotes before the Rambam, the keynotes, you know, uh, the, the the slichot that we have, that really the entire Mesorah, the way that it 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 it, it uh, uh, reflexively uh, addressed uh, uh, collective problems for Am Yisrael was to was to see it as as a function of our own deeds, 
this is the first time that any of us are really being confronted to think in these terms about our own lifetimes and our own experiences. Okay. And I think that that's that I think that um, um, this is difficult for us. We are accustomed to seeing a Kaddish Baruch Hu's bracha. And we're, our theology, certainly our Zionist theology, is, is, doesn't prepare us for this. You know, this is, you know, the beginning of our redemption. You can just look at it. You can see the prophet's words are being fulfilled on every street corner. And little children are running around. And old people are running around. And, and you know, all. So it, 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 it's, it, to, to begin to think in the terms that I am suggesting here is entirely at discord with, with, uh, with, with uh, uh, everything that we've been thinking about our age for the last 50 years. I think that's really where the difficulty comes in for most people to begin to switch gears and go into the older traditional way of thinking. I think also that um, um, uh, it's, it, we don't want to accept responsibility upon ourselves. We don't want to think of a Kaddish Baruch Hu as, as angry at us. And in this way, I think that our period is, is actually very similar to what Yirmiyahu was up against, uh, that the people just couldn't believe that a Kaddish Baruch Hu could possibly be that angry. He chose us, and he chose he chose Yerushalayim, and of course, Baruch chose Malchut Beit David, the Davidic King, uh, uh, and he loves us, and we're the chosen people. So, like, what's the matter with you, Yermiel? Uh, uh, and I, I think that was an incredibly difficult notion for the people to to let go of. Um, I, I just came out a half year ago with a commentary on, on Megillat Echan, Lamentations, and my take on Megillat Echan is that it's not keynote, it's not it's not oi 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 oi. That actually there, there's a running dialogue between Yirmiyahu and Batsion, who are the survivors of the Korban, and they haven't let go of that notion. They still think of Kaddish Baruch who loves them. It's that, it's that hypnotic. It's that intoxicating. And so we really don't want to think in other terms. And I don't think it's just, it's just the result of the Shoah. I really don't. I think there may be an interesting parallel here in terms of thinking about the way in which uh, observant Jews dealt with COVID. Obviously, COVID wasn't a uniquely Jewish experience. Right. It was a global experience. But yeah. I actually was interested at the time, too, that there wasn't much theological reflection even in that context either. Uh, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, halachic issues, about ways to solve halachic problems. But, you know, even there, there, there wasn't much discussion, even from very traditional communities. Right. Yeah, but David, I would, tell, you know, I, I would say that, that, that there, was, there was probably no reason for there to be. In other words, uh, you know, there's been plagues throughout history. I don't recall in any of our sources that I know of, that anyone ever saw, you know, plagues going around Europe and all that as, as, as you know, a cause for theological reflection. But what, we're, what we are enduring and experiencing now is, is the classic circumstance that is supposed to trigger theological reflection. Uh, the umot ha'olam around our borders invade our borders and cause massacres. That is exactly what the Tanakh talks about. And this is distinctly Jewish. And so therefore, right, I think it's a really different right, but I, I would, right, but I guess my sensitivity here is more along the lines of like, it's true that, you know, um, you know, the model you're describing is more natural for us. But at the same time, I think that the idea that I think there may be just sort of a almost like reflexive um, instinct among contemporary Jews to sort of avoid topics that are intensely theological. Right. So we sort of like may default back to places that are more comfortable for us, halachic solutions and stuff like that. But when it comes to sort of restoring back to the classic works of theology and sort of all it represents, right, I, I oftentimes think that there is some type of uh, resistance. You know, one of the things you point out in the article is, you know, what does it say about how we perceive God, right, in the sense that we're only willing to sort of view God through the lens of the positive? 
Uh, you have this great line where you say there that I think you may have referenced it a few minutes ago, where you say, we tend to view God as a divine version of a shul candy man. Yeah, I right? was going to say Santa Claus, but I thought I'd get into trouble with Right, that. Ex exactly. But that's really but, what I mean. That's what exactly. I mean. But then you had an interesting sort of caveat, which I thought was a sharp way of thinking about it, is, you know, the advantage of, of sort of seeing God in a more holistic sense, not only thinking about him as the shul candy man, as, as you write here, is that the covenant, it reminds us that a covenant is a two-sided relationship, Right. So I think maybe you can elaborate for a few minutes exactly on, on what that means. Because I think a lot of times if you ask modern Jews, like, what do they think about when they think about God? They, they do think in those terms, the shul candy man paradigm, right? But obviously you're right that a much more sophisticated approach to faith would assume that, wait a second, there's more going on here. And in order to really embrace that, you have to assume that God holds me accountable as well. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we have a responsibility. Look, you know, there's also moral components to this as well. You know, here, here we are. David, you and I, we're sitting in Eretz Israel. We believe that this is our land. Uh, we're fighting a war about this right now, to some degree, whose land this is. Um, um, and, you know, if, if we don't have any accountability, if there's nothing demanded of us, then essentially what we're saying is God wakes up one day and decides that he's just going to give a parcel of land to some people who won the lottery, who happens to be the Jewish people. They just, you know, to the, lot the lottery, there's no responsibilities in the lottery. You just have to have the right ticket. Uh, and, and, you know, if that's the case, then why, why, why should I have any more of a right to Eretz Yisrael than anyone else? Yes, I do believe that it's a Yerusha, it's an inheritance given to us from the Avos. But I also believe that what the rest of the Torah says as well, that it's part and parcel of a covenant of, 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 of fulfilling a Kaddish Baruch Hu's vision of being an ideal people, living an ideal lifestyle. Uh, and, and, and for me, that is what allows me morally to say, yeah, you know, uh, uh, Hashem wants us to be here, and and we have maybe perhaps some claims that others don't, but we have to live, we have to live up to our responsibility. I'm curious to, if you can sort of reflect for a few minutes on the relationship between sort of the model you described, which obviously is the, the traditional model, and the way in which people experience prayer. I'll give you an example. So tomorrow, I saw they're having a big atzeret tefillah right in the kotel, right? That's being run by the Rebbe Harashid, and there's a sense that you know this is the way that Jews are going to respond. Um, obviously, prayer is a, is a, is a found, fundamental foundation of our faith. At the same time, I, I'm sensitive to sort of where you're coming from here, because I feel like sometimes what happens is that the attempt to sort of see prayer as the primary solution, right, oftentimes is the way in which you sort of avoid taking some responsibility for yes. ourselves. You know, I'm reminded yes. sometimes of the view of Rabbi Yosef Albo that prayer is like changes us, and by changing us, you know, we change the world. Yes. But, you know, you don't yes. see, for example, in these signs and in these, you know, rallies, a sense that we, you know, we have to do chuba. It's more like prayer mm -hmm. as an attempt to sort of make a right. big difference. So right. you know, do, do you right. also agree that sort of like, you know, the, the call to prayer sometimes is an, sort of like an indirect way for us absolutely. to handle absolutely. this tension? Yeah, and, yes, absolutely. And, you know, and, you know, it's dressed up so nicely, you know, we believe in the power of tefillah. How often do you hear that? Often, right? You know, and tefillah of Rabim is, is more powerful. So we're going to do something powerful and we're going to scream until, until we shake, we shake the, 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 heavenly, the heavenly throne. Um, you know, th there's a lot of amuna in that, but it totally ducks our responsibility for our actions. Right, right. It's interesting you know, also, I'm, I think I'm, one I'm other... I am disappointed that there is no call for tshuva, that there's no psalm. I don't think they called for. I don't think they they had the slightest inkling to call for its own. Psalm was is an expression of tshuva. Right. Um, it didn't happen. Right. It's interesting. I think um, you know one of the reasons I think why sometimes people uh, feel resistant um, to use the model you're describing is because, and you address this in the article also, is there's an anxiety. I think sometimes people feel that if we start talking the language of God being actively involved and doing tshuva, so the question becomes, you know, are you going to start pointing fingers? 
right? And claim that it's not my sins, right, that caused uh, the horrors, it's your sins, right? So how do you sort of avoid the pitfalls uh, uh, of that exact uh, anxiety, right? How do you avoid the fact that someone could say, oh yeah, it's always them, right? And it's not me, right? It's the other person, it's not my sin. So, mm -hmm. you know, do you think there's a way to strategically sort of incorporate um, both, you know, the Molly describing as well as not having to turn into just a blame game? Right, right. So, so, so let's assume for the moment that I am convinced that my whole hashkafat uh, olam, uh, my whole orientation, spiritual orientation is, is the right way. Okay. I am convinced that basically I am, I am doing the best I can and, and, and all of my coordinates are the right ones. And all of our all of our uh, uh, current sorrows are because of what the other guy or the other guys are doing. Uh, you know, whether it's one camp or, or, or you know six other camps that I that I uh, uh, point to that are around me. Even if that is the case, it is still incumbent upon me to see this as our collective sins. What do I mean by that? Um, you know, as I mentioned in the in the uh, uh, in, in, in the Times of Israel piece, um, we have this this strange thing that we do on Yom Kippur. Uh, you know, we, we do the Al-Chet, you know, the Bidui. You know, we're all bound, you know, beating our breast many times. We do it a lot, a lot of times. We do it a lot, a lot of times because we do it twice in each of the each of the uh, Tzvilot that we have on Yom, on Yom Kippur. We do it once in the silent medium. We, we do it once during the Chazar HaShashans. And the explanation for that is that when we do it in the silent Amida, it's for my own particular failings. And that when we do it for in, in, in Chazar HaShashans, it's for our collective failings. So there's a, there's a really powerful idea that comes from that, and that is that my own vidui can work for members of Am Yisrael who are not me, who are doing things that I'm not doing. Uh, but, I, but I think that the key here is that we come before HaKadosh Baruch Hu in recognition of our collective failures. Even again, if I assume every, everything that Josh Berman, Joshua Berman has decided is the right path is the right path. Nonetheless, I have a responsibility for all those others. And so I, I think that it's this, this, this coming before Kodesh Baruch Hu in a sense of brokenness, in a sense of shame, in a sense of having let him down. Maybe if it's not me, but all of us collectively have done so. Okay, so that, that's, that's number one. Okay? That, again, is assuming that I am convinced that I am right about what I'm doing. Okay? But I think that, uh, um, um, uh, I think that there's also a call here for collective introspection by all of us. Uh, uh, I think, you know, and I think this is happening anyway for religious and non-religious people. A lot of assumptions that many of us had about many issues uh, uh, before Simchat Torah now need to be reviewed. Uh, what is our relationship to one another in the Medina? What is our relationship to uh, the Palestinians that surround us? What can we take for granted? What can't we take for granted? What does it say about our predilection for uh, uh, pushing off difficult choices? What does it say about, about um, uh, uh, um, uh, relying on the power of Tzahal and being you know, convinced that you know, since Tzahal has always saved us, Tzahal is always going to continue to save us? You know, falling into something that's very easy and comforting, but maybe is a little bit of a, uh, a delusion, and, and, and on and on. So I think that th there's nobody who is putter here from uh, introspection. And the interest, I want to make it clear, David, the introspection that I am talking about is not, oh, did I say Lashon Hara today? Not that Lashon Hara is a wonderful thing. I'm not, I'm not I don't want to be on Lashon Hara, okay? But I'm not talking about the normal type of introspection that we do. Oh, am I learning enough? 
You know, did I say my brachas with kavana? Those things are important. They are. They are. But they're not the issues that, are, that I that I think are are, are require are, that require attention here. I, I, I'm talking about the larger attitudes that we have. You know, I'll just give an example, not from our own time. Um, um, you know, I think it's pretty clear. Everyone knows this that the Yom Kippur War uh, happened because of what they call here a conceptia. What does that mean? The concept that, that was raining, that was like in the air all the time. The concept that was in the air on the eve of the Yom Kippur War was we are high and mighty because we we really we really you know wiped the floor with all of our enemies in the Six Day War, and and you know such a resounding victory had never been achieved by anybody. And they would never, therefore, raise their, their noses off, off the floor to challenge us. And because that is the mindset that everybody had when all of the indicators on, on the ground on the, on the eve of the Yom Kippur War were suggesting that there might really be an attack from Egypt and Syria, you know, the blinkers were there to, to convince us, no, 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 we're high and mighty. That's what I'm talking about, that type of introspection. I'm talking about the attitudes that all of us hold as a collective. Yes, it means talking about politics. We don't have to talk about specific things here, but these tend to be things that are political in nature. But the political and spiritual are connected. I don't, I don't like when people say, oh, that's politics. We're not going to talk about that. No, these things, these things are important to think about, all of them, all of them. So a lot of the examples you gave, which I, I agree, they're, they're very much important conversations and there definitely are political conversations and the political here and the spiritual are very much intertwined. Yes. yes. I, I'm, I'm curious if you, if you, if you, you know, it, it was interesting just listening to you describe some examples and you also describe these in your article. Yeah. You don't mention any of the more classic examples. I'm not talking about like the individual saying Lush and heart, right? I'm talking about, for example, let's say collective Chil Shabbos, right? Because again, you, you could you could imagine somebody listening to your examples and saying, you know, I'm willing to introspect on all these issues and all the classic conceptio, right, that we had need to be reevaluated. But someone could look at the Tanakh and say, yeah, but there are basic sort of violations, right, that are articulated in the Torah that are being violated quite regularly in the context of life in Israel, even on a mass scale, right, even on a communal level. So I, I, I'm curious, like, you know, how do you how do you navigate sort of like which types of things are in in terms of our you know collective conversation, and which ones are out? I mean, I think all the examples you gave, you know, especially living in Israel and having experienced what we experienced last year in terms of the divisiveness of Israeli society. Yeah. It's sort of obvious that those are things we need to reflect on. Right. But, you know, yeah. you can imagine somebody coming along and say, OK, but in addition, we should talk about collective Chil Shabbos and stuff like that. And are, are you comfortable sort of, you know, incorporating that also into the conversation or do you want to sort of have it be focused primarily on things that are more consensus? Mm -hmm. So I, I would say that, that we have to start with, as, as, as you just suggested, David, with the things that, we, that seem to be more the, the proximate causes of what we are currently enduring. So, uh, you know, if we're speaking about the, uh, 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 the tension within the country, and the 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 uh, uh, deleterious way in which that affected our deterrence, you know, kind of uh, eroding our deterrence, then we really need to come to the root causes of of of, of the tension, where that comes from. Uh, that's just number one, because because that there's a clear connection between those issues. Um, so uh, let me just point out one aspect of this that I think I think I can say this without alienating. You know, whenever you talk something political, you risk half, alienating half the audience. So let me say something that I. I think is is a, a, a political, but hopefully will not be alienating to either, a, a, any side in any of the debates that were here prior prior to uh, uh, the beginning of the war. Um, there is a, a sociological phenomenon which we're now seeing uh, seen sharply now in Israel and is even more sharper in America, and that is 
where group identity is a function of who am I against? Uh, you know, all Republicans will be against all Democrats. And if the Democrat, if the, you know, if the Democrat says this, then we have to be against that if we are a Republican. That type of mutual exclusive, you know, looking at things in such a mutually exclusive way is incredibly, incredibly toxic. And we have to avoid that at all costs. We can have debates, but it cannot be that, that uh, uh, everything that the other side says, by definition, I will reject because maybe it'll strengthen them and I will be weakened, which can't function. Jewish people can't function that way. Medina Yisrael cannot function that way. Um, um, I think also that we have learned, I think that one of the things that, 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 that brought about the tension in the past year, it's not the judicial reform, because there were attempts at judicial reform beforehand. Many of the things that were suggested, uh, Ayala Chakhed had mentioned, uh, you know, two or three elections ago, which means about, you know, two or three years ago. I think that part of what happened now was that the the um, uh, the formation of a narrow majority of parties exclusively associated with the right freaked out the left. Uh, and I think that what we see from here is, you know, when we when we see that one side, it doesn't matter which side, gets power, that's incredibly antagonizing to the other side. We have to aim for some type of consensus in the way which we govern. And policies can be a little bit more right; they can be a little more a little bit more left. But we have to know. When, and when, and whenever one side feels a big victory, and you've got to know it's a big defeat. It's a big defeat because you're going to lose on all the other things by the antagonism, by the alienation, by the, 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 by, by foreclosing any attempt at, at, at reconciliation. Much better to have things in the center. I think that this, you know, these are muster points, these are political points, but they are spiritual points. It's very interesting, you know, hear you describe this, you know, I think traditionally when people, you know, say in the liturgy, right? I don't think instinctively, yeah. at least from my own experience, Davidin, people, you know, reflect necessarily on the examples that you're describing, right? People oftentimes do not, things, because, right? In for terms good reason. Of like, yeah, for good reason, David, because, because, you know, you have Jews saying that in the four corners of the world, the whole notion of a Jewish people was really a kind of a, I would say, a, a, an abstract concept. For two thousand years, right, right. In other words, it's a theological construct. But you know, the Jewish people as a whole did not act in, in concert in any way for two thousand years, except that Baruch Hashem, you know, pockets of Jews all over the place continued to keep Torah mitzvah, right. a miracle in and of itself. Right. But here we have really for the first time, here I mean, you know, the last hundred years here in Eretz Yisrael, you know, the Jewish people acting as a political unit, as a collective unit. Right. So in other words, in that context, you know, in that context, now when we say, right. now we have a more expansive vocabulary. We're thinking about yes. what Hata'in. We have to think it, about more things than we used to. Yes, that's right. right. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting. You know, one of the things you pointed out in the article, which I found really uh, powerful, um, is, is, the, is the role in which, you know, thinking about uh, God being actively, more actively involved in human affairs and being more mindful of, you know, the potential for punishment and also, you know, for, for reward is mm -hmm. the sort of empowering feature of what that provides for us as yeah. individual yeah. Jews. Yeah. And, you know, maybe if you could just elaborate for a few minutes what exactly, yeah. you know, that means. Because, again, sure. I, I think one of the reasons why you had 250 comments on that, on this blog post, and why people hear and they instinctively react, oh, my God, what's going yeah. on here, is because they're not sensitive to some of the nuances that you pointed out in the article. Mm -hmm. Meaning it's not yeah. just, it often comes across as just the blame game. But you're describing right. something different. You're saying, no, 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 this is actually part of you know, our divine partnership here. And actually it gives us more power in terms of making sense of yeah. how this evolve. 
Yeah, yeah. Let me let me explain about how empowering and, and liberating this is. You know, I know at first glance it's like, oh, you mean you mean we're 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 to blame for what's going on? Oh, boy. Not only do we have to deal with Hamas, now we have to deal with God. Ah, oh, it's too much. Um, so I would say like this. I find it empowering but what I'm proposing for the following reason. And I think that one can look at many, many, uh, many examples in Tanakh that would be the same way. Um, if we take God out of the picture, okay, just look at things from a purely political, geopolitical uh, uh, standpoint and analysis. Where are we? We are, we are, we are, we are in desperate state. I mean, I, th- you know, Bar Hashem, it looks, sounds like Sahal is, 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 is executing the plan that has been made for it, Bar Hashem. Uh, but, you know, even under the best scenario, uh, we, you know, managed to, 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 to uh, uh, remove Hamas from power. You know, we're going to be stuck there in charge of, of Gaza for a long, long time. That's what it looks like. And it's not going to be pretty. And how this all works out is, is anyone's guess. And I don't think that there are any easy outs here. And I don't think anybody even has a clue of what the, the, the proverbial day after should look like. So. With that in mind, one can despair. Or one can say, listen, as they say here, God is great. But God will be greater if he wants to work for us. And if our deeds control our destiny, then, then, then it means that it's up to us to shape up our game. And then Akash Baruch will make sure that the cards fall the right way. Uh, and therefore, it's empowering and liberating. Because without that, it's very scary. What we're facing is very scary. And I think that, you know, this is just a simple lesson from Tanakh. You know, there are many episodes in Tanakh where, you know, Am Yisrael seems to be uh, outnumbered or in a bad way. But if they're doing the Ratzon of a Kaddish Baruch then a Kaddish Baruch Hu arranges things. Sometimes with a supernatural miracle, but more often than not, what a supernatural miracle? Uh, and so I'm not, I'm, expect, I'm not expecting here at Kriyas Yamsuk to deliver us. But, you know, there's a number of ways in which this could all play out. Many of them are not so pretty. Some are prettier. And, and I, you know, uh, uh, but it's, it's hard to see exactly how we get to there. And so if I fervently believe, and I do believe, that uh, uh, it's up to us, and I think that there are many things that are going to happen that are going to be very positive in the next few months, I do, spiritually, for the people of Israel here in Eretz Yisrael, uh, that gives me faith. The faith in, in, in our relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Hu. Not that he loves us and he promised us, but precisely because it's a covenant, because it's two-sided, I think there's going to be big changes here. And in Yerzah Hashem, that'll be enough uh, for, to create an eighth Ratzon. And the Kaddish Baruch Hu will, will arrange, the, arrange the board for us in a way that's more favorable. How do you avoid uh, the possible pitfalls of this argument in the sense that you can imagine someone you know, hearing what you're saying and appreciating the idea that we have a more expansive vocabulary for Chataim and we're thinking more globally in terms of you know p- politics being part of our religious discourse, etc. But to provide uh, a, an example, which I think was, was quite difficult to hear, there was, there was someone who gave a shear not, not, not that long ago, fairly recently. Uh, I didn't hear it, but someone told me about it. And the person mm-hmm. made a comment sort of Derek Agav about, uh, and again, even me verbalizing this, and I'm sure listeners could hear in my voice, even me verbalizing this, you know, makes me feel a little uncomfortable. Although, again, you may sure. say that this is because I've, you know, internalized some of the, uh, some different models of thinking about theology. Um, they were arguing basically that, you know, you know, if, well, if you look at, you know, people who, the massacres and such, et cetera, so oftentimes a lot of the yeshuvim, right, that were hit hardest were, you know, non-religious yeshuvim. So obviously, you know, hearing that, even if you're a traditional Jew, it's not always the easiest thing to hear, right? Given our, you know, how we think about 
involvement. And again, I don't mean to push too hard on this point, but I, I think it's an important point because I think that, you know, the example is that even if one wants to accept the model that we're going to expand the vocabulary of chataim, right? How does your model account for the traditional chataim? In other words, you're right. You can say that, well, Shmirat Shabbat isn't really a direct sort of corollary to, you know, issues of like military okay. issues. All right, so you know, no, so I, I didn't mean to exclude. I said, you know, we need to start with the ones that seem to be proximate causes. You know, leaving God out of the game. Just you know, just just the same as there will be, you know, commissions of inquiry that will want to know how we got to here. That type of hegemon nefesh. So we need to do that with our kipoton as well. Got it. Uh, but I didn't, I didn't mean to suggest that we limit ourselves to that. Good. Let's take Hebrew Shabbat. Yefeh. Okay. So most of the country is not Shomer Shabbat. So the question now for us as religious Jews is, what do we do? To, to bring about state of Shemrat Shabbat. Uh, and I think that is incumbent upon us. Uh, and the way to do that is to just get out of the way, not make legislation about Shabbat. We need to, we need to be models for ourselves of, uh, of what Shabbat is about. And that, that will come, you know, at some point on its own. Uh, I think it already, it already, it already is happening to some degree, meaning um, um, it is amazing I mean, this is commented upon by many people who come from abroad, not Jewish, who visit Israel. They are astounded <clears throat> at this thing that we call Friday night dinner, which is, you know, a national uh, uh, pastime here uh, where people get together with their families and everything shuts down on Friday night. Um, hey, yes, restaurants are open, et cetera. But for the most part, most people are spend, are, are, do something different on Shabbat and spend it with family. And this is not a small thing. And I, I think that, you know, I think that when I mean, you read about this all the time, though, that during the war, there's been a, a huge uptick in interest in things spiritual and things religious. And we need we need to, to give the the non-religious part of the of, of, uh, of the population the time and the space uh, to 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 work this out on their own and not legislate. Legislating mm -hmm. is the worst thing that we can do. It's interesting because even that example that you're describing now in terms of the application of it, right, is also a broadening of the category, right? Because it's not necessarily just about, you know, me being more particular or the community being more particular about right. you know, this right. sheet or that sheet and exactly. but it's about an orientation exactly. for thinking about the way in which we frame Shabbos on a, on a communal, right. national level that would hopefully right. make a change. And right. I'm curious if you think that uh, in some ways, um, much of your thinking about this, obviously, you're, you're a Bible scholar, you're a professor of Tanakh. I'm curious to what extent uh, you're thinking about this is guided by your religious Zionist sort of orientation. I know that Rav Amital, you're a student of the Gush. I know that Rav Amital, you know, in one of his uh, essays, just one specific example comes to mind where he talks about how one of the central features our religious life is being able to see God's hand in the world. You know, I'm, I'm curious, you know, to what extent do you think that, uh, that you know, the argument you're describing, you know, it, it is very much intertwined, right, with us coming back to the land of Israel, right, and feeling like, as you mentioned at the beginning, that Yad Hashem is more overt, right, in the place where we are. And part of being religious Zionist and part of seeing the world through this lens is being able to take the bad and the good. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think everything that I'm saying probably also, I mean, I spent eight years in the bush. Uh, and, you know, I think probably everything that I think spiritually, religiously, uh, many things, certainly all the things that I've said here in this podcast, I think are traceable back to things that I learned from Rabbi Mital and from Lichtenstein, Zechat Sadiq Levracha, both of them. Uh, uh, you know, there's, to, view, to view what spirituality is about, it's about in national terms, uh, uh, certainly the, to, to have a, to, a, a soft touch in terms of what we legislate absolutely is from both of them. Uh, I think an awareness of our responsibility for the rest of Kali Yisrael and what's happening there and not just closing ourselves in and not just, you know, uh, contemplating our own navel. 
this is all from 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 the two of them, from Rebekahstein and from Rebamitao. Yeah, I mean, the reason why I think that was a, sort of like a um, you know kind of an interesting angle to think about is because I think if you look at like uh, more Haredi theologians, right? You know, there when they talk the language of Mechatainu, they're not talking exactly using the same vocabulary that you're describing, right? They're sort of defaulting back standard yep. examples. Sure. Sure. And, you know, I, I think that it's, it's not necessarily coincidental, you know, I mean, even, you know, they, they always sort of default to the ones that we would associate with the more sort of ritualistic orientations. Mm -hmm. And by you expanding it, you know, so you, you are in a certain sense expressing a vision, which may be sort of more classically thought to be, you know, religious Zionist, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Well, maybe we could just end, um, but one of the, I think one of the more powerful pieces you have in, in the, in the, in the piece is how you sort of anchor this theological vision in the context of the Shimona Esrei. You know, I think that, you know, reading your piece, you know, I dive in three times a day for many, 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 many years. And, you know, I was reading the piece and I was almost embarrassed, you know, thinking to myself, wow, I dive in so much and I never thought about the way it was set up, the way Rabbi Berman articulated. Maybe you can articulate for a few minutes, you know, how is this one essay structured, you know, and how does this specific structure reflect exactly the vision you're describing? Yeah, right. Okay. So we all know that the core part of the Amida is Bakashot, is our request from Akadosh Baruch right? And there are 13 of them that are there. Now, you know, so obviously we all know the, the Amida by heart, so it's a little bit difficult to get some distance, but let's let's try to do that. Let's try to just you know not think about what we know the order is. Uh, but let's think to ourselves, okay, so if you had if you had to make a list of what you wanted to ask a Kadushbahu for, what would it be? And how would you order them? Okay. So maybe you would uh, instinctively do, you know, uh, Maslow's uh, pyramid of, of of needs, you know. The most elementary ones first, and and move from there. There are many ways that you might do it. Um, um, what I what I try to show here is look the 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 bracha that we ask for salvation uh, is the fourth bracha. Uh, you know, riva rivenu, all that to, to fight our battles. That that's the fourth that's the fourth request. If that's the fourth request, then what what comes before that? And the thing that's really the first. Um, that is the first request that is solely, purely for me, for us. It's not spiritual. It's, you know, I, I have these needs, which is legitimate. And I'm able to ask people to satisfy our needs. But, you know, that we should, that we should be granted salvation from our enemies, that is for us. The prior three brachot are not in the same category. They're not really about our needs in that basic fundamental way as salvation for our enemies. So what do we have? So we start with atachonin, uh, right? We want to have proper wisdom and perspective just to understand things. And from there we go to hashivenu. Uh, we want to be brought back to the ways of the Torah. And from there we go to slachlanu. We want to Baruch to forgive us for our avera. Only then do we begin to ask for our own needs to be saved from the enemies that uh, that uh, that pursue us. And I think that that really fits with the whole tone and tenor of what I've been trying to say. That Kaddish Baruch doesn't want to hear from us about what we need until we've shown that we have an awareness of you know what are the impediments to getting what we need. You know, so we're asking. Listen, we want to follow the rules of the game. We don't want to just view you as the shul candy man. We recognize that we are in a breach, and therefore, you know, please first grant us the things that we can do, what we need to do, so that we are worthy of receiving your 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 bracha thereafter. That's how I, I see just, it. Just out of curiosity, did you get any um, interesting responses, both from, let's say, colleagues, friends, students? 
to this post. I mean, obviously, it generated a lot of intrigue online. And uh, I was just glancing at some of the comments a few hours ago. It's it's pretty remarkable to see how people responded to it. I'm curious if you you know had anybody who tried to push back on theological grounds, you know, on practical grounds, you know, on uh, educational people, grounds. Some, some people in my Maimonideans, and they say, you know, there's just no such thing as scarborough. It's just all the natural, you know, uh, consequences of uh, of your actions. Um, you know, a lot of those comments there um, on the Times of Israel is read by many, many types of people. Right. This is a very firm piece. It's a very, you know, right. if you're not thinking about these issues, it, I mean, it, people wrote very vociferously, this is primitive. What are you telling me? You know, all those atrocities happened, but what, what could we have possibly have done that would, you know, and I understand people that aren't coming from a, a classic religious framework are going to have a very hard time, you know, relating to anything that I said. So that was also some of the some of the pushback from within our own our own world. Um, um, not so much, but uh, that doesn't mean that everyone would agree. You know, right. I mean, it's interesting. Just as we're people talking, people disagree, and they, they 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 keep their thoughts to themselves. You know, right? It's interesting as we're talking. I'm just thinking about the way in which sort of like oh, let me just say one sure. thing sure. that I think is important. I was struck both by by the, the comments on on the site and emails that I got. Uh, this went down much better with Haredi people than with religious Zionist people. In English. Yeah, yeah, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. Meaning, I think I think that the yeshiva world, the Haredi world, is is quite comfortable saying, yeah, it's it's because of our masim. It's a very firm way of thinking. Right. So I don't have any trouble with that. Right. I think those of us that are, hey, wow, this is Rishitz Mikagulatenu, this is an era, and you know, all, all the blessings are coming true. For us, it's harder. For right. Us, it's harder. Well, that's interesting. You know, just as we're talking, I'm thinking about it. You know, there's, there's a lot of times people talk about uh, faith. They'll say things like, oh, you got to have emuna or gamzu tova, Right. And oftentimes, like this type of, you know, religious orientation, you know, often does seem like it's removing some, you know, human initiative, some sense of responsibility, the sense mm -hmm. of whatever it's going to be, it's mm -hmm. going to be good. Don't worry. Right. And I think what you're trying and to unwittingly, argue here, unwittingly, people aren't even aware of, right, you know, exactly. of the downsides of what they're doing. It sounds wonderful, you know. Right. Right. Yeah. No, but I think the, the creative piece here, which I, I mentioned before, is that, you know, the empowerment here is lost entirely because right, if it's Hakola Tova and Gamzula Tova, right, then you don't feel in any way that. There is an empowering piece that you're actually part of, you know, making things better. And you can make better, right? Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Okay. Well, Rabbi Irwin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Wow. An amazing dialogue. Okay. And that was a really wonderful talk, David. And uh, I, I wish you lots of atzvacha with the podcast. And uh, we should all hear of Sarotavot. Okay. Thank you so much. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, the podcast of Yeshivat Oraita.